0: In his epistle to the Galatians, Paul addresses those Christians who've been counseled to follow the law of Moses in addition to the teachings of Christ. Paul's advice to them is similar to the advice of prophets today, walk in the Spirit. I'm Mark Holt, and this is Gospel Doctrine. gospel doctrine this week's lesson number 38 galatians walk in the spirit this is the podcast where we discuss the lessons from the come follow me curriculum in the church of jesus christ of latter-day saints as always should you care to email the program send me a message at gt at dot this week's question uh, actually, I got in person. The question is, whatever happened to Peter? We hear a lot about Paul, and the book of Acts is, is dedicated, after about halfway through, is dedicated almost entirely to Paul's, the events of Paul's life, and all the epistles, almost, not all the epistles, but all the ones we've covered so far, and by far the most of the epistles are written by Paul. So what happened to Peter? How come he's not mentioned more in the New Testament? It's a very good question, and the answer is, I don't know. And that's simply because uh, there's not a whole lot of information about Peter. What we do know is, in Acts chapter 12, uh, Peter is freed miraculously from prison, and after he's freed, he goes to the home of John Mark. Uh, We have this account throughout that chapter of Acts 12. Peter was going to be put to death, this is Herod Agrippa I, who had uh, a he had it in for peter because peter was preaching against the way that he was wielding his power and he'd already put as we as we have related in that chapter he'd already put james to death by the sword and so therefore uh, peter was and we don't know whether that was james the first counselor with peter or whether it was james the brother of jesus there was more than one james but we do know that uh, he'd already shown his willingness to kill followers of christ and Peter was miraculously freed, and then Herod came back and saw that these, uh, these two jailers that he had put to sleep on either side of Peter, just right in the same room, the angel was able to free Peter without waking them up, and uh, Herod Agrippa came in and ordered them to be put to death. So he was more than willing to kill people because they had displeased him. And Peter had seen that even being an apostle, wouldn't necessarily protect him. It had to depend on the will of God. And because God had miraculously freed him, we have in Acts 12:17 that Peter departed. After his, after his freeing, uh, he departed and went to another place. And that's the last we hear of him. We do have uh, a couple of epistles, general epistles of Peter. They're called general epistles because either we don't know who they're written to or they're written to everyone. And those come later in the New Testament. We will study them, and they're very enlightening, and they're short. So that's all we have of Peter, um, except for a legend that says eventually at the end of his life, he's brought, uh, and this is a few years after the death of Paul, Peter is brought to Jerusalem before Caesar, condemned to death, and then crucified upside down. The The Basilica of St. Peter today is is actually built atop the legendary site where Peter's bones were originally buried. So... Whether that's true or not, it, such decisions about places in the ancient world are generally made around sites that were identified by St. Helena, who was the mother of Constantine, the first Christian Roman emperor. And so whatever information she had in the 4th century AD is what we have today. It's, it's all based on legend. So that's that's what happened to Peter. Uh, I'm sure he wrote other things that we don't have access to. I'm sure he wrote to the churches that that he would have been sent to. And we have actually in the Acts, we have the uh, account of Acts saying that other apostles were sent east while Paul was sent west from Jerusalem and so we can assume that they were writing things and that they were both corresponding and writing doctrinal treatises on what they believed about Christ and having revelations, and we just don't have the records of those. And presumably, maybe they will come forth one day. Uh, Nobody ever thought that that we would have such a wealth of information as we have in the Dead Sea Scrolls, for example, but in the 1950s, they were discovered, and that was quite a thing. And so it may. it's possible that there is some record hidden somewhere, either in the earth or maybe in a library somewhere that nobody's identified. But as time goes on, it's less and less likely. But that's what happened to Peter. And we wish we had more from him because he's a powerful example of a prophet. Thanks for that question. So in this lesson, we're covering the entire uh, epistle to the Galatians. And this epistle is interesting because it's Uh, As Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we just finished studying Corinthians, and as Paul wrote to the Corinthians, their problem was that they were getting involved in sin and in hedonism, and he was writing to them to repent, to stop paying attention to people who would have them disobey the commandments. The Galatians are having a different problem, and this entire epistle is basically addressed to the idea, to the question... Do we have to obey the law of Moses? And we've, we've talked a little bit about this before, but this is really where this entire debate reaches its zenith, which is um, there are some apostles, Paul calls them pillars in the King James Version. There are some teachers who are prominent in the Christian community who are teaching that in order to... Be a true christian you have to follow the law of moses and there's good reason for this here's the argument that i imagine that they made which is that look at all of the wealth of history that we have in the old testament this is the history of god's people even jesus agreed to it, to that idea and jesus was raised with these scriptures so how are we going to turn our back on such a powerful spiritual tradition as the one we have in the old testament and therefore if the old testament is true and it is then we have to obey this law that we received through the Old Testament, and we do. And there were many people that, that continued to obey the law of Moses, in particular, the, the pr- practice of circumcision, the dietary restrictions, and then what are called sometimes days and seasons, the, the observance of festivals and of holidays, holy days, as they were known, in the Jewish calendar. And these are the different practices that together comprise what it would mean to be a, a what you would call of the circumcision. Paul refers to the, these people as of the circumcision. So in the, in the epistle to the Galatians, Paul actually draws a distinction between himself and Peter because Peter was the apostle that was sent to the Jews, and he recognizes that he was the apostle that was sent to the Gentiles. Now, in Acts chapter 15, we have the account... And we discussed a few weeks ago, several weeks ago, Peter's uh, revelation. But then later on, Acts chapter 15, we have this general conference of the church where all the apostles come together and they actually decide, okay, what is the requirement? What do Gentiles have to do? Those who are coming into our Christian movement, having never participated in Judaism, what is the requirement on them? And the decision was made. They don't have to be circumcised. Nevertheless, uh, either this epistle was written before that decision was made or it was written before that decision was fully accepted by everyone because Paul makes reference to some of the controversy that surrounded this changing practice and the changing beliefs. And there's still a lot of friction that is occurring. But Paul takes this opportunity, it's not just about the practices that are going on, Paul takes this opportunity to make a powerful metaphor for how we follow Jesus Christ. Do we follow him uh, in sort of an earthbound faith, and that's the way that the law of Moses would have us do it, or do we actually follow him through the Spirit? And that's where we get the title of our lesson, Walk in the Spirit. So... In chapter one, Paul is talking about those teachers that would have the Galatians actually depart from what they've learned that Paul has taught them, and follow another quote unquote gospel. So um, he's he's saying I, I I actually had an experience with this uh, with this chapter on my mission. I when I, unbeknownst to me, I was knocking doors, and the door happened to be on the same block as one of the major. Uh, Evangelical churches in my area, and 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 I didn't realize, but it was attached directly to the church. So I knocked on this door, and the man who opened it, again unbeknownst to me, was the pastor. So I walk in, and then I realized that his home is the back half of this church, and we're actually in the home of the pastor and in the church, and. it was interesting. He thought that we had done it on purpose, so he said, "Come in." You know, I've, I've even said, I think he said something like I've been expecting you or I've been hoping we'd get a, get the chance to speak because the town wasn't a big one. And we sat down and we spoke and he had a book of Mormon in his home, and he his discussion with us centered around the Book of Mormon, and he opened the Book of Galatians, and he said, "If anyone should bring to you another gospel, let him be accursed." Or has, as the word is in Portuguese, anathema, which is actually also an English word. It just means somebody who's poison or who is accursed. I didn't, I didn't actually recognize the word. I had no idea what it meant. I did not understand the scripture, and so I didn't do. I don't think I did a very good job of responding to him. And so um, this is part of this part of the lesson is me teaching my former self how I could have responded, and in a loving way what that pastor would have needed to hear, because he actually didn't understand the scripture in Galatians as I understand it today. So what was Paul saying when he was saying, if someone comes to you with another gospel, and what this pastor was saying to me is, this Book of Mormon, this other testament of Jesus Christ, this other, uh, and and the word is different in Portuguese, and there's some confusion there, and so what he thought was, you're bringing us another gospel. And in one sense, that's true, because we have the gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and now we have the gospel of, you know, you could call it, the, a lot of people outside the church call it the gospel of Joseph Smith, or maybe the gospel of Nephi, or whatever you call it. But it's, it's another gospel in that sense. But that is why the gospels are not actually gospels. What they are is the gospel, According to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark. They are not different gospels. They are all preachings about the same gospel. And in that sense, the Book of Mormon is not another gospel. It is another way to be exposed to the gospel, or you might say the gospel according to Mormon, or the gospel according to the translation made by Joseph Smith from ancient records. And in that sense, it's not another gospel. So, what is a gospel? Uh I've, I've covered this word, I've, I've taken it apart in a couple of occasions, but I'm not sure I've done it in the New Testament curriculum this year. I did it uh, when we studied Isaiah, and I, I know I did it a, at least a couple of times when we studied the Old Testament. So in Greek, a gospel, the word for gospel is, is pronounced euangelion, and eu, E-U simply means Good and you have, you have this, uh, this root showing up ver- in various places in English, euphonic, euphoria, these are good feelings or good sounds, and euangelion means a good and then a message or a messenger. and angelos is a message messenger, and angelion is a message. So simply, this means good news, and we've translated this into English through a process of what is called loan translation, where a word is translated instead of borrowed. It's actually, it's different parts are translated. So good is translated in Old English as God, and then spiel was a story or news. So God spiel became gospel. And this means, it has the exact same meaning as evangelion. Now, evangelion is uh, itself a translation of the idea from the Old Testament that somebody is bringing good tidings. And in the Old Testament, the, the word is actually for the messenger and not the message. The word is me basher in Hebrew. And if somebody brings good tidings, in, if somebody is a me basher, is that this kind of messenger? It's the kind of messenger that's referred to in Isaiah when he says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who bringeth good tidings. The, the good tidings that the hearers of Isaiah would have thought of is somebody is bringing the tidings of a battle. How did a battle go? Good tidings were generally about a king. It was about a war that the king was in. This is so interesting to understand because the gospel is generally uh, for, for Hebrew he- listeners, for Hebrew readers, for studiers and uh, students of the Old Testament and the Hebrew scriptures, they would have understood that the gospel itself was news about a king, was news about a royal battle. And in that context, it's so interesting to understand when Paul says, if somebody brings you another gospel, what he's saying is, if somebody tries to approach you with with words about God that don't have to do with his war with evil, then you can know that person can be accursed. And so Paul, what Paul was referring specifically to, those Christian, quote unquote, t- Christian teachers who were coming to the Galatians and saying, you need to follow the law of Moses. They were bringing different news. They were saying, our king has not actually triumphed over the need for this law. And that is why it was a different gospel. Not because it occurred in a different place, not because it was included in a different book of scripture. That would be silly because at the time of Paul writing this letter, the New Testament itself did not exist. Most of what we have in the gospels as uh, today, as of this writing of the epistle to the Galatians, had, did not yet exist, had not been written. So the Gospels themselves were not written when Paul said, if someone comes to you with another Gospel, let him be accursed. So he could not, absolutely could not have been referring to adding to the New Testament. It would be, It would have been absolutely impossible. There is no way that that's what Paul meant. Now this occurs, this question comes up again, in Revelations, when John says, if anyone adds to the revelations that are written here, let him be accursed, similarly accursed, right? And the the answer to that question is, he was referring only to his own writings, and there's no way he could have been referring to the New Testament. It did not exist. It was compiled later. In fact, the word Bible, in case you're unaware, means a collection of books, and so the, once that collection exists, only then can it be referred to as one thing. But for the people who lived during that time, it was, I ha, oh, I'm carrying this scroll for the writings to the Galatians. I'm carrying this scroll for Mark's gospel. I'm carrying this scroll for Peter's general epistles and... Most of the time, I'm just memorizing these things because I don't have enough paper, I don't have enough scribe time to have my own copy of every scriptures. And this was very common. They would have memorized these scriptures and they would have considered them all to be inspired writings, whether or not they were quote-unquote gospels. So that's what gospel means. That is the word gospel. It's important to understand. And if I had known that, I don't know how that conversation with this pastor on my mission would have gone. But evangelion is a good message now, to go a little deeper with this, in the scripture, when Isaiah says uh, the, the, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who, publish, who are publishing peace, the end of that message is, who, who say unto Zion, thy God reigneth. And in another scripture, in, in Isaiah chapter 40, he says, how blessed are those who bring good tidings, who say unto Zion, behold your God. So the two pieces of good news from Isaiah are, behold your God, and thy God reigneth. And that is why, when you say the gospel according to Mark or Matthew, Luke, or John, they're talking about the life of Christ, the appearance of Christ, the visitation of God, as Nephi understood it, or as it was revealed to Nephi, the condescension of God, how God condescended from heaven to visit his people. That's the good news. That's what gospel means. And so, if, if uh, to borrow from Paul, if somebody comes to you teaching that there is some sort of good news from God that doesn't have to do with Jesus Christ, that's not the gospel. This is what Paul was saying. And so the, the good news that people were trying to bring to the Galatians was, look, you guys need to be circumcised, you need to obey these dietary restrictions, you need to observe the festivals and the holidays the way the Jews have always done it, and in, in short, you need to be subject to the law of Moses. And if you do that, then you can be saved by that. And that is a different gospel than what Paul had revealed to the Galatians. Now, if you care to do this, uh, you can go onto Bible Hub, and you can actually, anywhere you see the word preach, uh, I think it would be interesting and informative to look that verse up in the Greek, in the original Greek on BibleHub.com. And I'll give you one example, Galatians 1.16. Paul is saying, "...it pleased God to call me by his grace." And then in verse 16, he says, to reveal his son in me, that I might preach him. Now, the word used in Greek is evangelize, I might evangelize him. And you can, you can see the, the word euangelion right there in the middle. And in many Latin languages today, it's evangelio or evangelio. The, the word comes directly from this Greek, which means good news. So Paul is saying, actually, I might share the gospel or I might share the good news about him among the heathen. So the word gospel is showing up a lot more places than we actually have it in English. Whenever you hear preach, the word gospel is there present in the Greek, and the idea of good news is screaming out to people. And to a Hebrew reader or a reader who had come to the Greek New Testament from a Hebrew native language would also hear echoes of thy God reigneth and behold your god every time he he hears this euangelion or preaching he would he would understand that it's news it's good news about a king and about a king's battle with his enemies now at the end of chapter one paul sort of gives a summary of his calling and he says, look, when I first started pre- preaching, I didn't even go to Jerusalem. I, I was called directly by God. I've got, I got my gospel from Jesus Christ himself in the flesh. It was three years before I went to Jerusalem. And I was interested in this because in the book of Acts, it records that Paul w- saw Jesus and then he, he went to Damascus, had his eyes healed, and then uh, made his way immediately to Jerusalem. But in Galatians 1.18, it says, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. So I was reading the different accounts of this, and it says that Paul stayed in Damascus many days. So it's just interesting to think about because we don't actually know what many days means. But when we recently studied the book of Acts, as I read these chapters about the conversion of Paul, I assumed he spent a few days in Damascus and then made his way immediately to Jerusalem. But here we have him saying it took him three years to get there. And so that that passage in Acts where it talks about Paul being many days in Damascus, he he was being hunted down and in fear of his life in Damascus, and that was a closed city. He was walled in. He could not escape. The way he eventually got out was being lowered in a basket over the walls at night. He had to he had to literally escape from the walls and climb out of there in order to get away with his life because he, he could not walk out during the daylight out of the city. That's that's what Paul was willing to do immediately after his conversion. So he's sort of testifying: look, I know what I'm talking about because Jesus Christ himself gave me this message for you. I don't I'm not making this up. And he does later say I met with I met with Peter I met with James and John and they gave me this calling they uh they extended me the hand of fellowship some some translations have this as we shook hands on the deal but uh it seems obvious that Peter James and John extended their hands and touched Paul in some way and so from a Latter-day Saint perspective we can wonder was this the the first presidency actually Laying the laying, giving him the laying on of hands, and calling him as an apostle, and setting him apart for this mission unto the Gentiles. In any case, we know that he did have this mission unto the Gentiles. And then he spent he he describes himself now into chapter two, as spending another fourteen years away from home, traveling all over Greece and the and what would be known today as Turkey. And that's where Galatia is, is right in the center of uh, modern day Turkey and being willing to journey all over the place and spread this gospel because the Gentiles were sort of, it was as if Paul had been prepared to talk to them. In fact, Paul describes himself as being called of God from before the time he was born for this mission, set apart for this mission even before he was born because he spoke Greek, he was a Roman citizen, he was familiar with the Hebrew Gospels, but he was also familiar with Greek culture. He was the perfect missionary, and as we see 2,000 years later, we see how powerful he was. He transformed the entire ancient Near East, and uh, he was the perfect missionary to to make that mission. And now he's telling the Galatians, look, don't undo the work that I've done. This, This entire epistle of the Galatians is Paul saying, for you now to go to the Law of Moses and assume that this is how you're gonna be saved is for every one of you to walk backwards. Now, at the, end, at the end of the epistle, Paul says, now, you don't have to, for those of you who are already obeying circumcision, you know, may you be blessed in that, but if you assume that you need it, if you assume that the law of Moses is how you are saved, then you are setting the grace of Christ aside. You are making the crucifixion of Christ to no effect, and this is very dangerous for you. And so and Paul even that Paul even describes a uh, later in chapter 2 Paul describes a, a controversy between himself and Peter because Peter visited the Galatians and when it was just Peter and Paul they were eating in the homes of Gentiles with no problem and as you recall from Paul uh, Peter's visit to Cornelius Peter had the the original vision where uh, the 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 corners of the sheet were lowered, and Paul could see all the the foods that were forbidden by the law of Moses laid out there, and the Spirit told him, Arise, Peter, kill, and eat. And then later he was given to know that that meant he could go into the home of Cornelius and eat in the home of a Gentile. But otherwise, that was forbidden to Jews, or at least by custom, forbidden to Jews. But here was Peter in Galatia doing that same thing. So we know this is after Peter's vision, perhaps even after the general conference where they decided This this question. And so Peter is obeying the vision that he's had, eating with the Gentiles in their manner, and presumably of foods that were perhaps forbidden by the by the law of Moses, as had been shown him by God, as was perfectly fine. And then some other church elders arrive, and Peter is sort of ashamed that he's been doing this, or maybe he wants to avoid offending these visitors, and so he stops eating with the Gentiles. And then there's this controversy that arises. Oh, if Peter can't do it, then maybe we shouldn't do it. And even Barnabas, Paul's companion, who's been traveling among all the Gentiles with him, even he started to feel that way. And then Paul describes how he called all of them to repentance. So this is really interesting because uh, this is Peter, I'm sorry, this is Paul calling his senior apostle Peter to repentance and describing it in a letter to church believers. It's something that would never happen today. Uh, and nevertheless, it's, uh, I think it's very interesting to study and to think about what that looked like. Look, these guys were learning how the organization and the governance of the church was to be accomplished, and this is Peter or Paul describing one of their earlier growing pains, and at the same time talking about how we are not justified by the works of the law. So, going now into chapter 3, the, you have right in the chapter summary at the top, if you have LDS scriptures, uh, the one of the sentences there is, the Mosaic law was added because of transgressions. So if you skip down to verse 19, Paul says, Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions. What does that mean? Uh, this phrase actually means the, the Mosaic law was needed. Now, Paul, the, for the first part of this chapter, Paul has been talking about the Abrahamic covenant, And the Abrahamic covenant is actually a promise of salvation. So the question is, why would we need the law of Moses, which came after the Abrahamic covenant, if we already have something that is going to lead us towards salvation? A couple of answers here. Number one, Paul says, and this is interesting, Paul says the Abrahamic covenant, when Abraham was promised that through his seed, should all the kindreds of the earth be blessed, the interpretation of Paul is, oh, you know what? This seed, these descendants of Abraham, it's not actually descendants, plural. The, The promise was given to the descendant, singular, of Abraham. And specifically, God, when he made his covenant with Abraham, was talking about Jesus Christ. Through your descendant shall all the children of the earth be blessed. Not descendants, not the Jews in general. Just one person, Christ. And so if we all want to be blessed then we have to figure out how to get blessed through Christ, not how to get blessed through being the seed of Abraham. And this was the controversy. This was the problem with all the Galatians, because being Greeks, they weren't literal descendants of Abraham, and all these high and mighty Jerusalem Christians or Antioch Christians were coming to Galatia and saying, well, you're... We are descendants of Abraham. We've been Jews for a long time. You're not descendants of Abraham, but, you know, you can get as close as you can by following the law of Moses. I guess it'll be all right for you. And Paul has such a problem with this because he's saying, if you think this is how you get access to the blessings of the gospel, you haven't understood the first thing I've taught you. Jesus Christ is the only way to get access to those blessings. So, what was the point of the law of Moses? If the promise comes through Abraham and the promise of Abraham is his descendant, Jesus Christ, then what was the point of the law? So in, that's what chapter, or I'm sorry, that's what uh, verse 19 is the answer to. When he says it was added because of transgressions, what he means is it was meant to teach us to define what sin was for us. And that is why in other, point, in other parts of Paul's epistles, he talks about how the law worketh death. And what that means is as soon as we become aware where our sins are, then we all of a sudden are taught about our separation from God. And that's what it means to work death. All of a sudden we have this understanding of how far we are, how, what to what extent we are spiritually dead, exactly the distance that separates us from returning to our Heavenly Father. And that is why Paul says over and over again in his epistles, the law worketh death. So the the law shows us exactly how much work we have to do and tries to prevent us from making things worse but doesn't actually do any work in bringing us closer to god in fact nobody is even capable of keeping all of the mosaic law as we've seen over and over again repeated throughout the history of the hebrews and therefore The law worketh death in two ways. One, by showing us how far separated we are from God, and in another way, by actually giving us requirements that it's impossible for us to keep. And Paul is saying, why would you put yourself under this heavy burden that includes all of these commandments that have now been superseded by a revelation from God himself, and which worketh death in the first place, and when we already have a better way? And by already, he is speaking about Jesus Christ. We already have the gospel. We already have the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. But he's also talking about Abraham because he's saying, we, before Moses ever came along, we already had this promise of Abraham. And Abraham got a covenant. Now, when you have a covenant, you don't get to add or detract. Once the contract is sealed, you don't get to add something by bringing in a third party to that contract later on. And Moses was just such a third party. And he was added to this contract of Abraham, but the the covenant of Moses, the law of Moses, can't actually affect the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is still in effect all these centuries later. And it was always going to lead the people of Abraham inexorably to Jesus Christ. Whether or not Moses revealed his laws, the covenant of Abraham was enough to save us. And the covenant of Abraham didn't work through literal descendancy. It didn't mean that only the earthly descendants of Abraham could be saved and could receive the blessings of the covenant. What he's saying is, through thy seed, through thy descendant, God's saying unto Abraham, through thy descendant shall all the kindreds of the earth be blessed. So this is a new understanding for a lot of people who have been Told and have, have had it beaten into them almost that Abraham is the means for their salvation only if they're his literal descendants and they get access to that only through the law of Moses. Paul is opening their minds to a new way of understanding that. And that sort of leads us into chapter four, which is this wonderful metaphor. I call it the allegory of Isaac because he starts out talking about how the heir of a kingdom does not, does not start as a child being treated like a king even though he's the heir, even though one day he's going to grow up and inherit everything, when he's a child, he's not the king yet. He has to be trained. He has to be taught. And so he's treated like a servant, even by the other servants. And and, and Paul makes this obvious correlation to us. Though we are the heirs of God, we had to be treated by servants, like servants under the law of Moses. But at one point, God, in verse four, he says, when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. And because ye are sons, God hath sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. In other words, when, when Jesus Christ sent the Holy Ghost to the earth, we had this feeling within us which taught us all that God was our Father. And once we knew that, we became the sons of God Himself. We became the heirs of this covenant of Abraham. Now John, later on, the Apostle John, John the Revelator, picked up on this idea. And if you remember, we we discussed this when we talked about John chapter 1. So John chapter 1 was his introduction to his entire gospel in which he introduced, if you remember us talking about this, he introduced many of the ideas he would later develop more fully through the rest of his gospel. And one of those ideas was the tale of two seeds, as we called it. The seed of those who were the literal descendants of Abraham and the seed of those who were born of the Spirit, who were spiritual children of God. And this is, now we're in John chapter 1, talking about the Word. The Word, the Logos, is this Greek idea of the human-facing aspect of God. The, the, that part of God which is capable of being understood and interact with uh, understood by and interact with men. That is the Logos. Just to put it briefly, there are whole books that have been written on what Logos means, but it's more than just the word. But God, but John is saying that this this huge aspect of God or a big part of God was made flesh and lived among us in, this, in the person of Jesus. And then as many as received him, now we're in John 1 verse 12, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name now this is what paul taught and paul wrote the galatians long before the gospel of john was written and so we can assume that john is is expanding on this idea of paul's that jesus christ is the one who gives us the power to be born sons of god by believing so in verse 13 he continues this idea which were born not of blood nor of the will of the flesh nor the will of man But of God. Now, when he says the will of the flesh, what he's talking about is people are born in the natural way. Men and women mate and they have offspring, and this is how people are born. But the sons of God are not born that same way. They're not born of the will of man. They're born in a different way. And what does that look like? And in verse 12, he explains it's those who believe on his name. You're actually born, you're actually given an ascendancy, you're given an entire ancestry that goes all the way back to Abraham, but then even further, and it goes all the way to God when you believe. And Paul has repeatedly talked about this idea when he's talking to all of his, uh, the people that he writes his letters to. He's saying, "You're when you believed, you took on an entirely new aspect of existence, and now you want to go backwards. How can it be possible? And so one candidate for a The the scripture where John originally got this idea is right here in Galatians chapter four. And uh, in verse seven, Paul sort of sums it up. He says, wherefore thou art no more a servant, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And he continues here in verse nine. But now after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and beggarly elements whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage You observe days and months and times and years, these festivals and holidays that we talked about. So he's saying, why would you go back and and take upon you this slavery, this bondage that you used to know? And by you, he's talking about people in general, all people who desire to serve God. You are going back into the ways of the Jews, the bondage that the Jews knew, which was the, the law of Moses, and the strict requirements not only of what the revelations told them to do, but that the Jews had over the centuries laid on themselves by their over zealousness towards the law itself and you're gonna you're gonna take upon you not only the revelations of the law of Moses but the traditions of the law of Moses, and bring yourself into bondage when you've been made free by Christ. Why would you do it and to illustrate sort of the the nonsensical nature of this decision in verse twenty two Paul begins to talk about this allegory between uh, the two wives of Abraham, Hagar and Sarah. And he says, For it is written that Abraham had two sins, the one by a bondmaid, the other by a free woman. And this is fascinating. This is, this is like a talk you would get by a modern scriptorian. I mean, this is right out of a general conference talk because he's, he's making this extended metaphor between the people who are literal descendants of Abraham which is uh, which? most of the Jews think, oh, we're descendants of Abraham through Isaac. But what Paul is saying is actually the literal descendants of Abraham are those descendants of Abraham who come through Hagar because Ishmael was born of Hagar by the flesh. In other words, a man and a woman mating, having a child in the way that children are naturally born. How was Isaac born? He wasn't born in that way because Sarah was way beyond the time when she could actually bear children. She was, Isaac wasn't the the child of Sarah. He was the child of the promise of God. He came about in a miraculous birth. And therefore, all of the descendants of Isaac are spiritual descendants of Abraham. And he even calls this an allegory. In verse 24, he says, which things are an allegory, for these are the two covenants, the one from the Mount Sinai, with which gendereth to bondage, which is Agar, for this Agar, or Hagar, is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and answereth to Jerusalem, which now is and is in bondage with her children. So he says, the, he's likening Hagar and anyone who wants to follow to anyone who wants to follow the law of Moses or the covenant of Moses that was made in Mount Sinai and which is still continuing. The people who live in Jerusalem and he says, Jerusalem, which is above, is free. In other words, the heavenly Jerusalem. These are the children of Sarah. These are the children of Isaac. The the Jerusalem above is the mother of us all. So in verse 28, he says, We, brethren, as Isaac was, are the children of promise. In other words, we claim our blessings under the covenant of Abraham not because of the will of the flesh, not because being that we're literal descendants of Abraham, but because we're miraculous descendants of Abraham, that we have been born by him of the Spirit, by the will of God. God has allowed us to claim this ancestry through no merit of our own. The same way that Isaac was able to come out of Sarah through no merit of her own. God did it in a miraculous way. And then in verse 29, "...but as then, he that was born after the flesh persecuted him that was born after the Spirit, even so it is now." So in other words, those who are following the old covenant, this fleshly covenant, the covenant of Moses, are persecuting those that are born of the Spirit. Even so, these people that are teaching you that you need to subject yourself to this burden— they're per- they're persecuting you in the way Ishmael did Isaac, and if you remember from the story, uh, Abraham caught I- caught Ishmael aiming an arrow. Or I guess this is a Jewish uh, tradition, but he Isaac Ishmael at some point tried to kill Isaac, and the those followers of this old covenant, the covenant that worketh the death, they're trying to kill our faith in Jesus Christ. This is such a powerful metaphor. It's so fun because it rewards all of the scripture study that we've been doing over the last year and a half. And it, it helps us feel like, wow, we understand the scriptures the way that the, the students of Paul understood them. And he's using the Old Testament to illustrate the necessity and the benefits of believing in Jesus Christ. And because we've been studying and reading all these things, now we can partake in that. That's, that's just, I don't know, it was really fun for me. I hope it was fun for you. So that takes us into chapter 5, and he, st- he starts right off saying, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty, wherewith Christ hath made us free, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So the freedom that comes by, by following Christ and being saved by faith, being made a child of God by believing, is freedom. And being made a child of Abraham by the flesh is bondage. So chapter 5, verse 3, Paul says, I testify again to every man that is circumcised that he is a debtor to the whole law. So if you want to take upon yourself the, the law of circumcision, you better watch yourself because there are 613 commandments in there that you're going to run afoul of the minute you start trying to carry your own weight, your own spiritual weight before God. Christ is become of no effect unto you. In verse 4, whosoever of you are justified by the law, Ye are fallen from grace. And in verse 11, Paul seems to be addressing the idea that he himself has been teaching that people need to be circumcised. Paul says, if I, I, brethren, if I yet preach circumcision, why do I yet suffer persecution? Then is the offense of the cross ceased. In other words, if I'm teaching circumcision, why would people still be hounding me about it? People, the the fact that we're still fighting about this it makes it obvious that this stuff is not coming from me. And it would mean that I wouldn't offend anyone by preaching about the cross, that the Jews would have no problem with me teaching about Jesus, period, if I were preaching about circumcision. This is the whole reason why they're angry at us. And then Paul says in verse 12, he says, I would, they were even cut off, which trouble you. Now, this is an interesting little side note. Uh, if you look at your footnote, in the LDS scriptures at the uh, after uh, in verse twelve cut off and it says excommunication. but the word here is actually the same word used in John chapter eighteen verse ten when Peter cut off the ear of one of the soldiers that came to arrest him, or it's the same word that Jesus used in mark nine forty five when he says, "If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off so um, what Peter's actually saying is if you want to obey circumcision, uh, those people who want to obey circumcision, I wish that they were cut off completely, meaning uh, that all of their private parts were cut off. And what he's saying is that those who are recommending circumcision, there, there's basically no difference between recommending circumcision and going the rest of the way. You're emasculating yourself. It's just mutilation at this point. And to strengthen that idea, the rest of chapter 5 is Paul talking about how the the Spirit is always going to be an enemy. It's always going to be at odds with the flesh. So the flesh, the lusts of the flesh, or the desires of the flesh, are always going to be to commit the kinds of sins that I'm going to list here, the, their manifest, their adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft. Now we're in verse 19 and 20. Hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, and heresies, envyings, and murders, drunken drunkenness, revelings, and such like. So he names all of the things that if you walk in the flesh and if you try to save yourself through your own power, this is, this is the kind of efforts that you're going to be involved in. In verse 17, he says, The flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. In other words, be, just because you've been made free, just because Christ makes you free, that doesn't mean that then you, you have the freedom to go out and commit all kinds of sins that your the flesh would push you towards without any consequence. By the contrary, what it means is that you now have the freedom from those things, that you can enjoy the fruit of the Spirit. And this is a very famous uh, couple of verses here. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, and temperance. And then he says these words, which uh, are often misunderstood, against such... There is no law. And he doesn't mean there are no commandments that would require you to uh, bring these fruits of the Spirit into your life. What he means is the law of Moses can have no power over you once, you once you're living by the Spirit. In fact, once Christ has made you an heir of God, once you've been born of God and you are now grown up in Christ, in other words, you're no longer this heir who's being being treated as a servant, but now you're fully recognizing that you're a son of God, you've been born to him, then you have had your fleshly parts, these desires, you've had them crucified, and uh, you've come to life again through Christ. In verse 25, he says, if we live in the Spirit, then let us walk in the Spirit. And kind of rounds it out in chapter 6, when he talks about the, the law of harvest, right? So he, the chapter 6 starts just finishing the ideas of chapter 5 that we have to bear one another's burdens and love one another. These are all still fruits of the Spirit. And then in verses 7 through 10, he talks about this law of the harvest. Be not deceived. God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. So if we're sowing in the fields of the flesh, then we're going to reap the harvest of the flesh unto death. But if we sow in the fields of the Spirit, then we're going to reap the harvest of the Spirit unto eternal life. And that's just a powerful metaphor, again, of the two paths the Galatians can take. Not only the path between the law of Moses and believing in Jesus Christ that he can save them, but the temptations that would drag them towards a fleshly existence versus the, the Spirit that would entice them towards towards a spiritual existence before God. And Paul finishes his epistle by talking about the motivations of the people who are trying to teach them. He says, look, what they want to do is to be able to boast that they got you to put yourselves under these heavy burdens, and it was through their efforts that you subjected yourself to them. But I don't want to glory about anything. In verse 14, he says, God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me, and I unto the world. Now Paul has expressed this in many different places. He's he's saying I want to glory in only in my weaknesses and only in the death of Jesus Christ, only in those two things. And uh, there was one part that I regretted not covering last week in our lesson, and this this part sort of is an echo of it when Paul is talking about in Second uh, Corinthians chapter eleven. Paul is talking about all the things that he's suffered for Jesus Christ. And uh, so 2 Corinthians 11, verse 23, he's talking about these, again, he's talking about false teachers bringing a gospel that does not save through the Spirit to those he has taught. He says, are they ministers of Christ? I am more, in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Of the Jews five times... I received 40 stripes, save one. Now, this is a reference to, in the law of Moses, you could be whipped 40 times, but the Jewish tradition was, in case there was a miscounting, it was a grave sin to beat somebody more than 40 times. And so they would always do 39 stripes. And these 39 stripes could be deadly. They often resulted in either death or in disfigurement or in some sort of disabling and Paul received this this beating five times. Now it's even more remarkable because as a Roman citizen Paul would have been free to say no, I don't I don't choose to participate in this beating and he would he could have walked away by his own word. But that would have denied him access to teaching the Jews. And so he was willing to suffer for the Jews. He was willing to put himself under their authority and receive their punishment in order to have access to keep teaching them. In other words, he loved them so much and he loved the gospel so much that he was willing to take what could have been a death sentence not once, but five times. In verse 25, Paul says, "Thrice I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned." And we talked about this story in the in the book of Acts when Paul was dragged outside the city, stoned and left for dead. They actually they stoned him so badly that they thought he was dead. And then presumably, through miraculous means, he stood up as soon as they left, but it got himself out of there. And uh, I mean, the, the question is, did he suffer as much, did, did it hurt as much as being stoned to death would have hurt? We can only presume he, he felt every stone that hit him on the body, that hit his skin, he felt all of it, and then he was able to survive it. He says, thrice, I suffered shipwreck. A day and a night I have been in the deep. In other words, he's swimming. He spent overnight and then the next day, um, swimming in the deep ocean and, and was finally rescued. Three times he suffered shipwreck, and this is before he wrote uh, this is before he went to Rome and where he was shipwrecked again. Uh, In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among, among false brethren, in weariness and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. And so Paul is saying, Look at, look at everything that I've been willing to suffer for you. And this takes us back now to the end of Galatians, where Paul says, From henceforth let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. In other words, my scars show me to be a true follower, a true slave of Jesus Christ. I've been willing to be beaten. Look at everything I've been willing to suffer to teach this gospel. These things are the proof that I follow my master who also has marks in his body. This is a powerful testimony that Paul is is a righteous teacher and he's showing us the right way how to judge between not only one covenant and another, the spirit and the flesh, but how to understand that we really have, when we accepted Christ, been born again, that we are made sons of God through his covenant with us and Christ has made us free in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.